You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats is among the most influential and well-known poems of the 20th century. It's one of my personal favorites, and I don't think I'm alone in that. If you're familiar with the poem, you'll see allusions pop up in literature and music all over the place. It was written a hundred years ago, in 1919 in the wake of World War I. That war held horrors enough to inspire a poem about the end of the world, but the war was only part of the story. There was the global flu pandemic that held the world in its grip, there was civil war in Russia and Yugoslavia and Estonia, the Soviets were conquering all of Eastern Europe, England was at war in Afghanistan, and there were socialist and anarchist movements in revolt all over the world, in France, Germany, and the U.S., as well as Argentina. Added to all of that, W.B. Yeats was Irish, and in 1919, that means the Irish War of Independence. That war would tear Ireland apart, and all of that, all of that horror was, in one way or another, tied to World War I. All of those tertiary events seemed poised to shatter the fragile post-war peace. So let's look at the opening lines of The Second Coming. Yeats writes, quote, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. End quote. It's the word gyre that interests me here. And if I slip up and say gyre with a hard G today, let's just move on. But a gyre is a vortex, essentially. I think about spirals, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes are climatic gyres. Crippling depression is an emotional gyre. Metaphorically, the widening gyre in the poem is often interpreted as the worldwide social and political concerns spiraling out of control. You can see why Yeats would write about the end of the world here. And I've been thinking about that poem a lot lately, mostly because I've been reading about oceanic wind patterns. And the largest of these, the wind patterns that shape global climate, are called gyres. And I was familiar with the word from the Yeats poem, but I'd never heard it in real use before. 
But today we're going to be talking about the Pacific gyres. In particular, we'll be talking about three famous Pacific voyages that made use of them, those of William Dampier, Francis Drake, and Ferdinand Magellan. This is episode 120, a Saturnalia of feasting and lovemaking. In a show about pirates, topics like wind currents can kind of fall by the wayside. They aren't exactly swashbuckling fair, but part of what I want to try to do is to put you in the shoes of the pirates. And it wasn't all rum and sword fights and freedom. I mean, there was rum and sword fights and freedom, but there was also wind patterns. The humdrum day-to-day minutiae of sailing life was a real concern for the pirates. Now, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on any of this, but it matters today. See, we're going to be looking at the similarities between Drake and Magellan and Dampier's crossings, as well as the differences. And I mean, things like the gyres only kind of matter, really, but well, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's begin with Ferdinand Magellan. He was Portuguese by birth, a minor noble son. As a boy, he served as page to the Queen of Portugal, but this was the dawn of the Age of Sail, Social advancement was earned at sea. And Magellan's story really begins almost exactly where we left off last time, in the decisive Battle of Dieu. Magellan's first voyage to the East Indies was under that 7th Portuguese India Armada, the Armada of Francisco de Almeida, and Magellan fought in the Battle of Dieu, alongside his cousin, Francisco Serrao. Now, Sorau would go on to lead an expedition eastward to find the Spice Islands. Meanwhile, though, Ferdinand Magellan sailed back home to Portugal. He did so to pitch an idea. Magellan believed that there was still a viable westward route to Asia, and he wanted the permission and money to find it. But King Manuel I of Portugal was not interested. You know, they had a sea route already, so why bother with another one? Magellan... He fell out of favor. He received a few job offers, but they were small-time fare, nothing compared to his ambition. So eventually, the king of Portugal gave him permission to put his idea before King Charles of Spain. Now, King Charles had a vested interest in exploring the boundaries of his American holdings. He wanted very much to know what lay on the other side. I mean, who knows what was out there? Islands made entirely of gold? And, you know, if Marco Polo's writings could be believed, and they couldn't, there were palaces built entirely of solid gold in Eastern Asia, and that might just be on the other side of the Americas. He wanted the opportunity to claim as much of the East Indies as he could before the Portuguese got their hands on all of it. I mean, gold and silver are nice and all, but have you tried nutmeg? What about cinnamon, pepper, and mace? I mean... The spices that the East Indies had to offer were invaluable. Well, not exactly. They were extremely valuable. But it wasn't just the spices. There was silver, and rubies, and gold, and women. Attractive women. Exotic women. Women who could be... Converted to Catholicism, properly covered up, married to good Spanish men, and have good Catholic babies. Which you know, kind of was a big part of their purpose here. They were trying to spread the Catholic faith around the world. So Magellan convinced King Charles to outfit an armada for the purpose of circumnavigating the globe. Magellan thought Asia was just on the other side of the Americas. You know, maybe China's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Brazil. 
They brought more food than they would need for a voyage like that, though, which, you know, was lucky. The voyage consisted of five ships, and the three that were worth noting here were the flagship Trinidad, under Magellan himself, the San Antonio, under Juan de Cartagena, and the Santiago, under another Sorao brother, another of Magellan's cousins. And we should also note a Spanish convict named Juan Sebastian Elcano, who signed up for the voyage in hopes of a pardon from the king. Now, the fleet was mostly Spanish, but Magellan and Sorao did bring a number of Portuguese adventurers along on the voyage, and many of the commanders, due to the voyage being organized by Magellan, were Portuguese. Now, Juan de Cartagena was Spanish and third in overall command of the voyage, and all of that matters. The ships were provisioned with wine and tack and livestock and almonds, and a dried jelly that was rich in vitamin C. This would hold off the scurvy that nobody really knew about yet, but not forever. The fleet headed for Brazil and made landfall at Rio de Janeiro. This wasn't Magellan's first stop at Brazil. He had stopped there on his voyage to the East Indies earlier in his career. And some of his crew had been there before, but not everyone. Those that had been there talked up the many charms that they would find in Brazil. And you know, there's practical reasons to stop at the river. The water and food and wood that they took on was a necessity, and the locals were prolific traders that made a good profit in those trades. But, you know, that's for the quartermasters and the captains. The regular sailors were much more interested in the women of Rio de Janeiro. And they actually got amazingly lucky here. The region had been gripped in a drought for two months, but the dry broke and the rain arrived at almost the same moment that Magellan did. Were the Spanish and Portuguese wizards who brought the rain? Were they loved by the gods? Were they extraordinarily lucky men who were sure to father children with similar blessings? I mean, none of that was probably true, but were they going to dissuade the local women from thinking that was the case? Absolutely not. Imagine that you're a young man, about 16 to 22. You're unmarried, you're from a deeply religious culture, and you've been on board a ship with only men for about a month now. You're rowing to shore amid a tropical downpour, and all of a sudden you see dozens of women running to shore to frolic in the rain in the surf, and they're not wearing any clothing. When you finally make landfall, these women run out to greet you and wrap their arms around your neck and plant kisses on you. And come nightfall, the local leaders throw an opulent feast for you and your men, and everyone enjoys what Ian Cameron called, quote, a Saturnalia of feasting and lovemaking, end quote. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to travel to Rio for festival, to drink exotic drinks, to eat exotic foods, and to sup on exotic snacks? That's precisely why many of the men on this voyage had signed up in the first place. It was the selling point when the crew masters were recruiting. You know, adventure, and money, and women. And, you know, maybe they'll even pay for college. But now... The desires for adventure and women were sated. They'd seen new parts of the world on the other side of the globe, 
and they even had enough Brazil wood in their holds for them to have a paycheck back home. They could spend that money on drinks while telling all of their friends about the crazy time they had on their semester abroad. A lot of the men were ready to return to Spain, but they couldn't go home. They'd only just begun the voyage. That Atlantic crossing was only a taste of what they had in store here. Many of the men began to grumble, and a few of the Spanish officers started to take note. Juan de Cartagena, the top-ranking Spaniard in the fleet, third in overall command. Well, in the eyes of the Spanish, Cartagena was really in charge. I mean, after all, this was a Spanish fleet outfitted by the King of Spain on a voyage of discovery for Spain. And we could speculate all day about clandestine meetings between shadowy power brokers back in Spain and officers on this voyage. We could think about bags of silver from Spanish lords and premeditated coups. But we don't have any proof of any of that. What we know is that shortly after Rio, Cartagena attempted a mutiny. No, that didn't go well. He didn't have the support he expected here. So Cartagena found himself arrested and slapped in the brig. Now, a man of lesser birth, of lesser standing than Juan de Cartagena, probably would have been killed, but you didn't kill a powerful noble like Juan de Cartagena. So the voyage moved on. But as they went further south, conditions grew too cold and too icy to continue, so Magellan chose instead to winter on the coast of South America. Now, a lot has been made about the similarities between the mutiny on this voyage and the... Mutiny faced by Francis Drake. And any similarities that are there are at best superficial. Both events happened on or around the southern half of South America on the first and second voyages of circumnavigation. But really, that's about it. The mutiny faced by Francis Drake was hardly a mutiny at all. It was a fabricated Machiavellian power move. It was intended to secure his control over the voyage and prove that he would kill anyone who questioned him. Frankly, it was a kind of a boss pirate move. But on the other hand, Magellan faced an organized coup perpetrated by the Spanish leaders in his company to wrest control away from him and the Portuguese. Cartagena had allies among the Spanish officers, and he was spreading discontent among the Spanish crewmen. While they were at anchor, Waiting out the winter, a number of Spanish crewmen took control of three of the ships in the fleet, and those three surrounded Magellan's two. Now, they didn't want to attack Magellan's ships. There were innocent men on board, both Portuguese and Spanish. They also didn't want to risk wasting resources that were on board those ships or damaging two of the king's own vessels. Instead, they hoped that Magellan would surrender, then they could put Cartagena in as the admiral, and Magellan could stay on as captain, and they could continue the voyage in peace. But in the night, a pinnace that was on patrol drew too close to one of Magellan's ships. He captured it quietly, subdued the sailors, and dressed his own men in their clothing. Then he sent the patrolling sailors back to one of the mutinous ships, where they claimed to have important information about Magellan. They were allowed on board, and once on board, they arrested the mutinous officers, stabbed the captain to death, and took control of the ship. 
Once in command, they raised a certain flag, surreptitiously, that would signal Magellan that they'd taken command without alerting the other mutinous vessels. Magellan maneuvered his two ships into what would have otherwise been a suicidal position. The two ships still under mutinous control didn't know what had happened, though, so they prepared to attack Magellan. But then the ship that had just been taken over opened fire on her former allies. The mutineers in command on the last two vessels knew that they'd been outplayed. They surrendered. They held a trial on shore for all of the mutineers. Two of the captains were drawn and quartered, and then their bodies were put on display. Think of the rack, those X-shaped crosses on which bodies were placed for flaying. That's where they were displayed. According to Francis Drake, who would find the gibbets several decades later, some of their bones were still hanging in place there. However, Juan de Cartagena was the ringleader here, but he was still far too well-born to be executed and left to rot on a foreign shore. Instead, he was given a small share of food, he was accompanied by a friendly priest, and the two of them were left alone on an island. Cartagena was never heard from again. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The rest of the traitors, the regular crewmen who were behind the mutiny, were pardoned. They were only allowed to go free on the condition that they would not carry any weapons and that they would do the worst of the work. They careened the vessels, they cleaned the bilge, they did all of the jobs that no one else wanted to do. But that's still better than execution. Juan Sebastian Elcano was among the pardoned prisoners. Once it was warm enough to move on, they began the voyage again. Now, the discovery and navigation of the Strait of Magellan was a thrilling, death-defying affair, but we're not going to discuss it in depth here. It took a month of navigation through the route, though. Magellan lost one of his ships en route, probably to a mutiny, as the crew would arrive in Spain some seven months later. Their former captain was in chains, and those men were arrested and put on trial. But on 28th November, 1520, 
Magellan's fleet emerged into the bosom of the open ocean. This ocean was still called the Southern Ocean when it was given a name at all. No one had named it yet. At least, you know, no Europeans had given it a name yet. And they didn't have really a concept of how big it was. Ferdinand Magellan noted the calm waters and the steady winds. He called them Pacifico. Now this isn't one of those moments where the main character turns to the camera and says with a wink, this truly is a Pacific Ocean. Magellan was just describing the character of the ocean. It was calm and peaceful. It was Pacifico. It wouldn't actually be called the Pacific Ocean for about another 300 years. Instead, the Spanish and Portuguese called it Mar de Magellais, or the Sea of Magellan. The Dutch, English, and French were not going to follow suit, though, especially after the Reformation and the schism that happened in Europe. The convention among their sailors, the mostly Protestant sailors, and thus most of the pirates, including Francis Drake and William Dampier, was to call this the Southern Ocean. It was actually Dampier's voyage through the Strait of Magellan and across the Pacific that took the first steps toward the new name. He recorded wind patterns in the ocean. But it wasn't until the late 18th century that it became clear they needed a distinction between the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic Ocean. It would be stupid to keep calling it the Southern Ocean when there was another ocean further south. So it was renamed the Pacific in honor of Ferdinand Magellan's first arrival there. But Magellan, ignorant of the distance he had to cross, set his heading north-northwest almost immediately after leaving the strait. This proved to be a mistake, a mistake that later Pacific seafarers all knew better than to make. And now we need to return to the discussion of gyres for just a moment. The Southern Pacific Gyre is a counterclockwise wind pattern between Australia and South America. The Northern Pacific Gyre is a clockwise wind pattern between Asia and North America. Now both patterns blow west at the equator. There's also a countercurrent at the equator that carries ships to the east, and this creates something of an equatorial oceanic highway. It's how nearly all ships traversed the Pacific Ocean for centuries. It's the single most expeditious route across the ocean, unless you had business elsewhere for some reason. When Francis Drake crossed the Pacific on the second circumnavigation, he sailed north all the way to Oregon, and then he caught the North Pacific Gyre south to the equator. When William Dampier and Charles Swan set out, they departed from Mexico, also to catch the winds south to the equator. Magellan, on the other hand, set sail directly from the Strait of Magellan. Had Magellan known better, he could have sailed north along the coast of South America to catch the current. He would have at the very least given himself access to wood and fresh water. But Magellan didn't know better. Instead, he just sailed through the southern Pacific Ocean for two months. His men began to suffer from hunger and thirst and scurvy. That vitamin C jelly they had ran out fast. Magellan was sailing through what's called Polynesia today, which is an island group in the central Pacific Ocean. The Polynesian Triangle includes three islands that make up sort of the borders of Polynesia. That includes Hawaii, far to the north, Easter Island, or Rapa Nui, to the southeast, and New Zealand to the southwest. And then Polynesia encompasses over 1,000 more small islands, including the Samoan Islands. 
Polynesia is huge, way bigger than the U.S., but most of these islands are tiny, and they're usually very distant from one another. Magellan missed nearly all of them as he traveled through the South Pacific. But finally, after two months of sailing, around the 1st of February, Magellan caught the equatorial winds that he should have caught far earlier and entered what's called the Micronesian Island Group, to the northwest of Polynesia. Now, Micronesia is a geographic distinction in the Western Pacific, but within the geographical region of Micronesia is the nation of Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia. But that nation only makes up a fraction of the Micronesian Islands. Another prominent island chain within Micronesia is called the Marianas Islands. It's close to where the Marianas Trench is located. Now, those are a separate independent nation within Micronesia, except for the largest and southernmost island in the Marianas Islands, the island of Guam. Now, today Guam is a U.S. territory, and that brings up the question of colonialism. You know, names and how they relate to geography are a tricky question here. Many Micronesian islands currently belong to other larger nations, or have in the past at the very least, which makes the naming conventions here problematic on its own. For example, the Marianas Islands are named after Mariana of Austria, a Spanish queen who never set foot on the islands. The Philippines are named after Philip II of Spain, and the original names of both the Marianas Islands and the Philippines have been lost in the mist of 300 years of colonial rule. And once again, the geography is confusing here because what we think of as the Philippines, the modern nation of the Philippines, isn't the same as what the Spanish considered the Philippines. The modern nation of the Philippines is within the formerly Spanish territory, once called the Philippines. The Marianas were part of that distinction as well, including Guam. In fact, nearly all of what's called Micronesia today is what was once considered by the Spanish crown the Philippines. So in much the same way that I'll sometimes call the Pacific Ocean the Southern Ocean, because the people who lived during the time our story takes place would have considered it the Southern Ocean, I might occasionally call some of these islands part of the Philippines when they're not part of the modern nation-state of the Philippines. And that includes Guam. It was Guam that the lookouts on Magellan's voyage spotted when they called out Tierra, Tierra. The people of Guam, the Camoro, were not called the Camoro when Magellan arrived. That's another problem of the naming conventions. The Camoro is a Spanish designation that still holds today. It's how the local people identify themselves, but it wasn't when Ferdinand Magellan arrived. See, there's this huge variety of cultural diversity in the people of the Pacific Islands. The unifying factors among most of these people is... Well, first of all, you've got the shared history of Spanish colonization, but then you've got their linguistic heritage. I mean, there are a ton of different languages spoken in the Pacific Ocean, but they nearly all belong to what's called the Austronesian language family. The Austronesian language family, much like ancient Chinese or ancient Latin, is the progenitor of a ton of modern languages. And before European contact, people who spoke languages belonging to that family stretched all the way from Madagascar in the far, far west to Rapa Nui in the far east to Easter Island. That's more than half of the globe and encompasses both the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And those people traversed those oceans in Latin-rigged ships centuries before Magellan was even born. 
So when people, especially here in the U.S., when we talk about Pacific Islanders, it's hard to know exactly who they're talking about. Usually that's in reference to Polynesian people who aren't either Hawaiian or Samoan. But it can sometimes include the people of Hawaii, Samoa, the Philippines, Indonesia, and any of a hundred other cultural groups, including the Comoro people of the Marianas Islands. And those ships that these people used to traverse the Pacific and Indian Oceans, well, they were impressive. Magellan's crewmen were certainly impressed with them when the Comoro came out to meet with him. Fine, fine ships. But everything else about the Comoro people was... Well, imagine this situation. Magellan's men were weak and sick with hunger and scurvy. They needed food and fresh water and vital nutrients. They needed them desperately. And then a small fleet of these impressive, Latin-rigged Comoro sailors came out. And, you know, they thought, maybe they're bringing us the food we need. Maybe they're willing to trade. But according to one officer on board the voyage, the Comoro, quote, entered the ships and stole whatever they could lay their hands on, including the small boat that was fastened to the poop of the flagship. Those people are poor, but ingenious and very thievish, on account of which we called those three islands Ilas de los Ladrones. End quote. In English, the island of thieves. But were they really thieves? I mean, they did take whatever they wanted without paying for it, but the Comoro people had different notions of property and ownership than the people of Portugal and Spain. This is the kind of conflict we see a lot when indigenous people come into contact with the outside world. Of course, traditional European propriety flew right out the window when half-naked Brazilian women were offering themselves up freely, but when it comes to your stuff, these Europeans were a lot less inclined toward multiculturalism. There was a brief scuffle, but in the end the Comoro fled in the ship's boat. Magellan led a counterattack the following day and reclaimed their property, including the boat. Then he burned down the village, killing at least seven villagers. They moved on west to reach the Philippines, the island group that we would today consider the Philippines, the modern nation of the Philippines, on the 8th of March. They landed at a small, uninhabited island that had water, game, and trees of fresh, ripe fruit. And it might be, in part, that the people who were writing down the events of this voyage knew that those accounts would be read, but the way they wrote about the fruit they found here on this island is even more luscious and loving than how they wrote about the women in Brazil. But it also might be, well, you know, try an experiment for me. I want you to eat nothing but crackers and stale water for three months. And not the good kind of crackers, no olive oil and black pepper. Think month-old off-brand saltines, and then take away the salt. Then, go to the grocery store after two months of nothing but crackers, and buy yourself a single lime. See how fast you eat that lime. See how much you love it. See how sweet it tastes. And, you know, don't actually do that. You'll probably die. A bunch of the crewmen on Magellan's voyage did before they reached the Philippines. And the way they died, well, scurvy was just terrible. But the men who found themselves here to this small, uninhabited island had their pick of all the fresh, delicious, vitamin C-rich fruit they could want. All of those old enmities that had blossomed during the mutiny 
seemed to have fallen by the wayside. These men were survivors together, and here they had a few moments of peace and plenty. But I'd like to look at what they found here in the Philippines from the point of view of another sailor who made the trip and who was similarly unprepared. William Dampier and Charles Swan arrived at Guam 167 years later, in 1686, on board the Signet. Now, Guam was no longer the island of thieves when they arrived. Almost exactly a century before Dampier, the Spanish had showed up to subdue the populace. This wasn't exactly colonization. They weren't setting up colonies, just building forts and harbors. They needed Guam as a sort of a stopover for the Manila Galleons. But 18 years before Signet arrived, the Spanish did commence colonization proper. There were a bunch of Spaniards living there. However, these Englishmen were pirates. They'd perfected avoiding the Spanish over many years of a successful career, and they did the same here at Guam. Now, the Englishmen on board the Signet knew all about scurvy. They knew about the causes of it and how to prevent it vitamin C deficiency, and vitamin C. Actually, it had been Francis Drake's second circumnavigation of the globe that led to much of that knowledge. So the men on board Signet weren't suffering from scurvy. They'd consumed plenty of vitamin C before leaving Central America, and they had enough to make it across the Pacific Ocean, which they did much faster than Magellan. They used that equatorial highway. But they were starving. Remember, the crew of the Signet was plotting to kill and eat Captain Charles Swan shortly before arriving. And partly, that was the hunger. You know, they were down to just a few spoonfuls of corn a day. And partly it was madness, but mostly it was vengeance. McCrewman wanted to take revenge on Captain Swan and on Dampier, as they saw those two responsible for bringing them on this mad voyage. But Swan and Dampier were saved when they arrived on Guam. They beheld the bounty that the island had to offer, very similar to that which the men of Ferdinand Magellan's voyage enjoyed. And Dampier goes on to tell us at length of the many delicious fruits and vegetables that were available there. He talks about coconuts and coconut milk, and then he talks about the broth that the locals made by simmering coconut flesh in a mix of coconut juice, fresh water, and some local spices. They would then add rice and fish and fresh vegetables, and sometimes they would garnish it with a lime or a mango. Honestly, this is starting to make my mouth water. I mean, that sounds delicious, right? Dampier thought so as well. But mostly he's interested in the palm tree and the coconut. He tells the reader of the textile benefits of the palm tree in addition to the nutritional benefits, and he goes into detail about the means of growing them. Then he writes, quote, I have been the longer on this subject to give the reader a particular account of the use and profit of a vegetable which is possibly, of all others, the most generally serviceable to the conveniences as well as necessities of human life. Yet this tree that is of such great use and esteemed so much in the East Indies is scarce regarded in the West Indies, for want of knowledge of the benefit which it may produce, and it is partly for the sake of my countrymen in our American plantations that I have spoken so largely of it. End quote. Now that's sort of true, but I mean, it's not like the people, the native people of the West Indies, hadn't figured out that the coconut and the palm tree were great. 
it was the Spanish conquerors that came in, killed all of the Native Americans, and took their land that didn't realize how useful the coconut was. Which is crazy, because the Spanish knew that coconuts were useful from their time in North Africa. But it's got something to do with that insane colonial attitude, that superiority that they choose to show partly by refusing to eat local foods. But Dampier was more than happy to eat some of those local foods. But then Dampier goes on to tell us about the people of Guam. He was echoing Antonio Pigafetta, a Venetian who was sailing alongside Ferdinand Magellan, when he talked about those ships that the Comoro sailed. He was deeply impressed by them and their seafaring ability. Everyone was always really impressed with these ships, called the Proa. Pigafetta compared the Proa to the Italian gondola, which makes sense. Both were long, thin ships that had an identical bow and stern. They were built much like a canoe in that neither end was flat. That means that the ship could sail in either direction. You know, which side was the bow and which was the stern would just switch. Later, circumnavigations and men on voyages of discovery would also mention how maneuverable and fast these ships were. The big difference between the proa and, say, a gondola or a canoe is a second hull, parallel to the body of the ship, called the outrigger. When people talk about outrigger canoes, they're talking about a design based on the proa. Dampier writes, quote, The natives are very ingenious beyond any people in making boats, or proas as they are called in the East Indies, and therein they take great delight, end quote. Ingenious beyond any people, Dampier says, and he wasn't wrong here. These were the ships that sailed all the way to Madagascar, all the way to Easter Island, that traversed and explored the Philippines and Indonesia. And honestly, they still are that. They're still commonly used in the Pacific Islands today. They're fast, agile, and versatile ships. In fact, the vessel that currently holds the world record for circumnavigation via sailing power, 40 days, is based on the outrigger model. They're amazing ships. The big problem with the ship designs in the classical world, all the way from the Middle East to the Viking world, is that they had trouble tacking against the wind. Turning around was difficult for them. That means that they always had a hard time maneuvering, especially in battle when they needed to move really fast. But these ships could just turn their sail and all of a sudden they would be moving with the wind in an opposite direction. They were spectacularly maneuverable ships but they had one major flaw. They couldn't hold big guns. The Chinese ships that would sometimes sail in from the north, they could hold the big guns. The Japanese ships that would sometimes sail in from the north could hold plenty of big guns. And these ships that arrived with Francis Drake, William Dampier, and Ferdinand Magellan, they all held big guns. And that lack of gunnery would prove to be a problem when armadas of Spanish galleons showed up to conquer the Philippines. But we're not there quite yet. Next time we're going to finish talking about Ferdinand Magellan, and then we're going to continue on with William Dampier. We're going to look at the major similarity between their voyages and explore the most famous of the three classic blunders. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone for helping to support the show. Everybody who has recommended this show online or in real life, 
Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, or those of you who have made donations through the website, and those of you who have given us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show, you all make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. I recently went to go check out the YouTube video of The Old Captain by Brillig, and I saw a bunch of comments that were from you people saying that you were sent there by the Pirate History Podcast, so you all are awesome. However, if you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight